Welcome to the Politics of Everything. I'm Amber Danes, your host and podcast producer. This is a half hour of power, a podcast dropping every week where I unpack the politics of everything, from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment, quality, and much, much more. Our guests are seasoned in the field or topic of their choice, even if you've not heard of them yet. This is a non-partisan show. So while I love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate of ideas, this is not a purely blue, white, green program. Please subscribe, tune in and enjoy the politics of everything. Negotiating is a part of our everyday. From business deals to romantic relationships, we all need to be able to create outcomes that work well, hopefully meeting our needs and those of others whom we may work, transact, live and socialise with. My guest today is Simon Russell. He's the founder and director of Behavioural Finance Australia, or BFA. At BFA, he provides specialist behavioural finance training and consulting. His services are designed to improve financial decision-making, communication and engagement. He mostly works with fund managers, major super funds, financial advisors and other financial services professionals. He's the forefront of how behavioural finance research can be applied to improve financial decisions and outcomes. His own research has demonstrated the efficacy of a number of relatively simple psychological strategies, such as how changing that order of investment returns are presented can help investors make better long-term decisions, how anchors, and we'll chat about those a little bit later, can impact perceptions about the value of financial advice, and how category labels and graph axes can influence investment choices and risk perceptions. He's also the author of three books on behavioural finance and is currently writing his fourth, Behavioural Finance, A Guide for Listed Equities Teams. He's a regular speaker on behavioural finance and financial decision-making at a variety of industry and academic conferences. He holds a raft of degrees, which will be in our show notes, but I'd love to just crack into it today and talk about the politics of negotiation. Welcome, Simon. Thanks very much for having me. Okay, so let's go back a few years. Young Simon, I don't imagine behavioural finance was something that as a kid you thought you'd be working in. Do you remember what you wanted to be when you grew up and how did that really eventuate for you? You're right. I don't think behavioural finance really properly existed back then uh, anyway, But uh, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do back in young Simon days. But I, I mean, I guess I enrolled in a degree that was fairly flexible. I chose subjects that I was interested in, which include sort of psychology and finance and economics. And then it just, I, I guess it took me from there. So I ended up with a, a major in psychology because I found that's, that field quite fascinating. And then I've uh, ended up going back to doing a commerce degree in finance investments and several other qualifications in that area as well. So whilst behavioral finance didn't really exist, I guess I got the underpinnings from the psychology and the finance. Those two things were in separate faculties in the university, but subsequently they've sort of blended together to form behavioral finance. And that's, I guess, ultimately the field that I've ended up in. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it all it all ended up being in the right the right pot of expertise, I suppose. I'd love to ask you why negotiation is so important in your mind and how we can start to get better at it. Because for a lot of people, it would seem intimidating. It seems like, you know, it's about conflict or conflict resolution. What's your take on it? Yeah, I think those perceptions are quite are quite common and sometimes are, are barriers. Um, but I mean, to answer your question about why it's important, I, I guess it's because negotiations broadly defined is just so ubiquitous it's it's everywhere it's in the 
uh, all sorts of business relationships, whether you're negotiating a, a, a contract, negotiating a, a salary, buying a house, sort of buying a new dress. I don't know. This this negotiation, the sort of the domestic negotiations around who does the dishes and mows the lawn. So it's 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 everywhere. Why it's important, I guess, is because it makes a difference for us as individuals. Obviously, we want to negotiate good outcomes for ourselves, and then. The bit that I think that is perhaps those those barriers you mentioned about the, the, the conflict part get in the way of then seeing the, the bigger picture about trying to negotiate a sort of with the, well, the sort of stereotypical win win scenario where we're enlarging the pie and making things better for 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 everyone. So those I guess those things are well they're, they're everywhere and they're important, but then it's it's difficult because there's a bunch of those sort of psychological challenges. So getting better at it, I, I guess is understanding some of those decision-making issues and some of the sort of psychological barriers that can get in the way of making things better for us and making things better collectively for us and whoever we're trying to negotiate with. Absolutely. So behavioural economics is your area of specialty and particularly you get to advise, for example, superannuation funds through your workshops and advisory work and it's obviously backed by real insights from psychology, no pop psychology as, as your website says. You use research that informs that negotiating discussion. I'd love to know what in your experience is the number one mistake most organisations make when it comes to addressing deeply ingrained issues with the way that their leaders negotiate and how you can go about remedying that. So I'm thinking more about the problematic negotiating side of things and kind of how you overcome that in an organisation. Yeah, a good question. I mean, I, I guess I'm working with a bunch of people who have a range of different experience and expertise in negotiations already. So some people, it's fairly foreign. And for them, I guess it's about building some of the basic building blocks sort of understanding your position, the value that you contribute, what your options are and and then thinking about your negotiating counterpart. So there's getting some of that sort of stuff right, I guess. But some of the people I'm working with are seasoned negotiators. If I'm working with a, a I don't know, a senior leadership team or a, a private equity group, for example, that this is what they do day in, day out. And so, so for the people who've got those basic building blocks in place, the bits and pieces that I'm trying to add to and tweak for them or help them to tweak and understand some of the options for, uh, again, are really around those, those psychological concepts. So they're, they're taking things, as you say, from the psychological research literature. And then quite often they've been also tested in negotiating uh, scenarios. So uh, I don't know, you might have... Uh, Harvard MBA students who have been run through a negotiating case study scenario and you can put them into sort of a hundred different negotiating pairs and, and design systems around sort of slight variations in how the negotiation, negotiation runs. And so you get insights from those sorts of studies and then you can say, well, how can we apply those in a real world context? So if I was to pick, I don't know, one broad theme that some of the more sophisticated people can, sophisticated negotiators can perhaps see as an area of opportunity i think it would be about some of the communication pieces that, that go hand in hand with negotiations and so to give you one example there's a thing called the illusion of transparency and what that means is if i'm say i'm lying to you so i don't know i've eaten the last cookie from the cookie jar but i claim that i didn't <laughs> so how does it feel when i tell you no no it wasn't me i didn't eat it someone else must have well, yeah. it feels to me like I'm guilty that I'm sort of it's it's obvious to me I've got this conflict going on and it it feels like that's seeping out into my communication. It feels like that would be transparent to you and that you'd be able to tell if I was lying. And then how does it feel to the other person who's then viewing me or if we're having a face-to-face -face conversation? So how would it feel if 
they're asking me this question and they're a bit suspicious. Did I, am I lying or not? Well, it sort of feels like you, you can tell because, well, I'll probably be twitching in my seat or looking, my eyes might go up and to the left or down to the right or something. Or maybe I'm sort of sweating or hesitant in my, the way I articulate my answer. So it, it, it would feel a bit like you can tell if I'm lying. But unfortunately, both of us would be wrong. It's not nearly as transparent as I think as the communicator, nor that the other person thinks as the recipient of that communication. So we end up with this illusion of transparency where there's a gap between what we both think is going on. And that gap is then filled with things called attribution errors. These are sort of errors in judgment about how we attribute meaning to what the other person is doing. And so, for example, in a negotiation, if I'm taking a strong negotiating position, the way people tend to interpret that is I'm a bit of a hard-ass negotiator. Actually, yeah. <laughs> the interpretation should be, no, no, I actually have a very good negotiating position. And this, this is an example that's been tested. So it's understanding those communication gaps, but then saying, and what is the implication and what sort of questions or assumptions should we be challenging and how can we sort of you know, communicate more clearly? So there's a, there's a bunch of sort of things in there that can can help, I think, even with the sophisticated decision makers to say, well, actually, there are some of the, the sort of the tweaks that you can add to what is probably already a fundamentally sort of fairly sound approach to negotiating. Absolutely. So most businesses obviously want actions and I guess um, realities that generate higher returns, maybe lower risks and winning as well as retaining more clients. However, it would be easy when things are going well in a business, no matter whether it's a corporate or a startup or anything in between, to let the status quo kind of keep going because there's no real problem there. There's no need, financial need perhaps. But how do you advise those sorts of businesses to maybe future-proof their entities because good times don't always last? Yeah. I mean, this sounds like a business that wants everything, doesn't it? <laughs> but, I mean, we want it to all. To me, it boils down to... Yeah, that's right. We don't want any risk. We just want everything to be great. So, but to me, that's it. Boils down to how you deal with risk and uncertainty. And I think I like your example because you've got in there. There's well, there's a risk of disruption. Maybe the status quo won't go on because something else will happen. So we've, I mean, we've got famous examples of Blockbuster being disrupted by Netflix and Kodak being disrupted by digital cameras in phones, for example. So the status quo might be disrupted. I mean, the flip side of that is, well, there's an opportunity cost. Actually, maybe I could have gone and done those things like Kodak could have, well, it was developing a digital camera. Maybe it could have developed its business down that path. And Blockbuster, well, they had the opportunity to buy Netflix for $50 million or whatever it was back then. So there's an opportunity cost. But then you've, you've also got to balance that with, yeah, but if I do something, I've I've then got the risk of then creating a whole lot of worthless sort of innovation that doesn't actually eventuate into some commercial opportunity. And there's heaps of those around, I mean, Google Glasses and all sorts of stuff that we've uh, we thought were good ideas that turn into nothing. So I think we're sort of damned if we do and damned if we don't. And, and the question is then how do we balance the risks each way? And without having a silver bullet answer to that, because it's obviously very difficult. But for me, I think one of the key things that, that is a contributing factor to making those decisions well is having a, a, an effective, cognitively diverse team that's making that choice. Because those teams that have diverse perspectives and heuristics and ways of doing things and, and bring different information, and then they have mechanisms to combine that information and bring those sort of perspectives together. So are they running pre-mortems? Are they doing secret ballots? Are they all those mechanisms in effective cognitively cognitively diverse teams? That would be the stuff that I'd be looking for as a as a remedy to some of the risks 
from from risk perspective and also as a as a potential sort of mechanism to capture some of the opportunities as well. Okay, that makes sense. So you wrote in a blog post that I read that part of the problem is that people tend to judge the success of negotiation by other parties' responses, and I think a lot of us would relate to that. But why is that such a big problem? And is that not just human nature? Is that just not how we are when we are in a negotiating phase, if you like? Yeah, so the the problem of – so what is the problem? So so let's imagine if I could split the world into two almost identical universes – and in one universe, I put a, um, an offer in for a house, say I, I put the offer in at 1.5 million into a sort of private negotiation scenario, and that offer is accepted. Okay, that's one universe. Yeah. In the other universe, the other version of Simon sees the identical house, but this time decides to put an offer in for, say, I don't know, 1.4, say. There's a bit of negotiation that goes back and forth and end up we end up on 1.5 as a negotiated outcome, and I buy the house for 1.5. Okay, so in both those two universes, the very same Simon has bought the very same house for the very same price. So if I did a little satisfaction survey to say how satisfied am I with my purchase, really the, the two Simons should be identical. It's All the objective aspects of that transaction were identical. However, that's not what happens when you put people in this sort of scenario, obviously not parallel universes, but putting people in different categories and giving them the same sorts of situation, but having this, the negotiation uh, slightly different. And what tends to happen is that the person who put the $1.5 million bid in and it was accepted immediately, that person tends to be fairly unhappy. So they're thinking, oh, bugger, I should have put something in lower. All right. Oh, right. No, I, okay. They feel much. a bit ripped off perhaps, you know, to use a very colloquial term. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's right. Yeah, that's, yeah. you're thinking about the, the counterfactual scenario in which, oh, I could have just saved myself 50 grand or 100 grand or something and now I've blown it. No. So, so that's just the rumination that goes on in the head of the person who was accepted immediately. And, and it's not the case for the person who's had to negotiate to, the, to, to ultimately the identical position. So it, that's, that's, I guess, an example of where we're using the reaction of the person, the vendor in this case, as a guide to how satisfied I should be about my, my purchase. And sometimes, fair enough, there, there is sense in that because, hey, if I buy a lemon car and I see the, the, the seller high-fiving, having got, got rid of this thing off their hands, that's probably an indication that, that I've, I've, I've purchased something poorly. However... Uh, and that's I completely agree with your question that this is human nature we have it's difficult to judge the value of things and so we sort of look for rough proxies and ways of doing so and what the vendor how happy the vendor is is a is a, a guide to that however why that can be detrimental I guess in the context of negotiation is where the the negative response of the of the person I'm negotiating with, negotiating with actually is a poor indicator of a good transaction so, for example, if I've got an employee and I'm negotiating a salary with this employee, what I don't want is to negotiate them so low that this person accepts begrudgingly and they really hate hate the sort of the contract. And what's going to happen is, well, I want to have a long-term productive relationship with this employee. I don't want them to go to the next job that they're going to get or to be so unproductive because they, they, they hate the organization because they're feeling they're underpaid, the same sort of thing with business partners we, effectively we need to find solutions which both people are then going to be happy with otherwise we won't have a productive longer term relationship so i think this is a good example of yeah there's a bit of psychology going on it's pretty deeply ingrained in what we're doing and sometimes it's fine to be honest it's, it's these the, the psychology is there for a reason it's because it actually has helped us in many situations 
However, it can hinder us in some other situations. So part of what I guess we need to do is an understanding the psychology is saying, well, when is it helping us? When is it hindering us? And then what are the consequences and what should we be doing about it in those situations where it might be getting in the way? Yeah. And that look, that really reminds me when, um, you know, a million years ago when I was studying my communications degree, we looked at some public relations theory and it was very much about audiences who can help or hinder us in terms of how we communicate. So I think communication would probably be a big part of how you solve that in some ways as well, because you can think what you think, but if you haven't shared that with the other party or parties involved in the negotiation, it could seem like you don't care or that you're not as engaged in the solution as, as you could be. That would be my, my take on that. Yeah, communication then. Yeah, I agree. That's, that's, that's a, a big fundamental piece of finding win-win uh, situations is if you, if you can't, cannot share my position, what's going to work work for me, what's going to work for you. If if that dialogue can't take place in a sort of a, a fairly open environment in which people are willing to trade things but also look for creative solutions to things, then we're going to end up with solutions in which either one party is is left feeling poorly or both, or effectively that the, the the overall solution is suboptimal. That sort of mm. suboptimal can be measured in some of these sort of ex- experiments. But what it turns out to be in real life is uh, an employee who leaves six months down the track or a business relationship that falls over or someone didn't meet a KPI. Why not? Because they were pissed off from the start and they didn't tell you. All that sort of stuff, I guess, is how it manifests exactly. in the real world. But it's I the agree. human side of it. it boils Absolutely. Down to, yeah, and it boils down to communication to start with. It's, if you don't get that uh, up front, then you don't find those sorts of solutions. So the single most powerful and reliable psychological effect you talk about to people is this concept of anchoring, which I mentioned in the introduction. Psychological research shows that anchors can significantly impact people's decisions and negotiations research confirms that anchors can impact negotiations in particular. Can you just explain for us what is anchoring about and how does it work in, in practical reality, in action? Yeah, so maybe I might start with what I don't think anchoring is well i guess I, th- I think when i when i say anchoring what some people think of is someone has an idea in their mind and they're stuck on that they're sort of anchored on this idea and they're reluctant to move away from it so that's what some people think and i'm not saying they're wrong I, that's just not what i i refer to so i have a, a similar sort of idea when i'm referring to an anchor except instead of it being a concept that people are stuck on it's a number and why a number well, I think partly because then you can actually measure it and test it in sort of in empirical research. So you can see, you can measure it. It's not just sort of, sort of a, a woolly idea. You can actually measure how effective it is. So what I'm looking at is a number that then drags people's estimates or ideas of value or, or um, sort of amounts they're prepared to pay or, or all sorts of things towards that underlying anchor. And so an anchor can be something that's fairly relevant. So if I said, Hey, uh, going back to a property example again. Hey, properties in this in this area go for normally go for two million dollars. What what do you think this this particular house is worth? Now, that two million dollar number could I could have plucked it from the air, for example, but it's likely to then drag your estimate or other people's estimates towards it. And I mean, I I did a um, another podcast actually on on property auctions and 
uh, went to an auction, and that's exactly what they do. They, they are deliberately putting these anchors into the auction process to keep trying to drag your estimates towards the anchor. And obviously, if it's an auctioneer, they're dragging, trying to drag your estimates higher. Yes. So in some cases, they're using it, and it's a sort of a roughly sort of valid number. In other cases, the studies are ridiculous. You can roll dice and, and find a couple of numbers that have clearly been you know, randomly generated, or you can spin a pinwheel, or you can get the last three digits of your phone number. All these sorts of things can then change how much you're willing to pay for a toast or how many countries you think are in the United Nations or all sorts of stuff, height of a tree, stuff that's completely irrelevant. And so this is a, a very powerful way that things can be, you can be influenced about all sorts of stuff, often in ways that you, you wouldn't expect because these things, you go, oh, no, those dice shouldn't make any difference to my estimates. <laughs> so I, I use anchoring all the time in, in, in demonstrations of how we can be influenced because it's just so reliable. But if you bring it back to a negotiation context and say, well, where are the, neg- where are the anchors in negotiations? They are all over the place. So the obvious ones are the, the, a bid or an offer when you're going to, to make a, a transaction. Those numbers are, are anchors, and, and the research shows that they do then influence the negotiating range and then negotiating outcomes. So it is important to think, to think who goes first in a negotiation. But it's dangerous to go first because you don't necessarily know what the other person is thinking. So there's, there's quite a few nuances in, in when you go first. But even if you don't go first, the indicative offers or the comparable transactions or the benchmarks that you use, or, or there's a whole raft of other numbers throughout a negotiation. And so in each of those cases, I'd be thinking, is the other party using a, an anchoring strategy that might be influencing my perceptions? And if so, how do I counter that? And how can I be thinking about proactively using negotiating anchors in my negotiations as well throughout the course of, of a negotiation? So I, I have a session that has 12 sort of psychological strategies in it. And I put anchoring as number one because I, I figure that if they, people come away from, with nothing else from this, this, this uh, the psychology of negotiations. If they only come away with anchoring as the one concept that they think about and apply in their negotiations, I reckon that's probably a, a fair chunk of the value they can take from, from some of this sort of psychology. Well, that's great to know. So obviously we've had two years of a pandemic and it's not over yet. There's more widespread remote working for most people, even businesses that never did it before are now sort of saying people will not have to come back to the office full time. So I'd love to get your insight into because of this dramatic shift in the way in which we operate, communicate, maybe not in person as much anymore, what's changed when it comes to negotiating? And is there an example of how it's kind of played out because it is very different negotiating remotely to being in a room and maybe it's generational like I grew up in a in an era where meetings you know the most important meetings were always face to face but that's always obviously not always possible and even desirable these days yeah so a great question so so if I took a, a step back and said well what do we know about different communication mediums and mediums for negotiations prior to the whole pandemic and the remote remote work and all that sort of stuff. What do we know? Well, uh, we knew, for example, the power of the face-to-face, face-to-face meetings you know, for, for rapport building, for relationship building, for all of that sort of stuff up front. And there's, there's countless examples where all that sort of personalization and humanizing of, a, of, a, of the transaction counterparties can make a big difference to negotiating outcomes subsequently uh, throughout a transaction. So what I would have typically been saying to people is, if you're going to meet people face-to-face, make sure you do that early on in the negotiation. That's where you're going to get a lot of value from all that sort of personal the personal stuff that will then flow through the transaction. 
All right, so there's there's a role for face to face, but face to face has some downsides, and not only the fact you have to jump on a plane and <laughs> and I don't know risk getting COVID on the flight or something. That's what I'm thinking. Um, it's, it's a very different proposition these days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. So that's that trade off is now harder, but but that that was that was so significant in the first place. So I would personally, I, I would still do that, and I still do that in my own business because I still find it harder meeting new clients over Zoom than catching up with them for a coffee where I can. So I, I definitely wouldn't catch up with a coffee if I, if I could, particularly for a new client, but for existing clients, well, we've already met each other and we know each other and the communication, the rapport building has effectively been been done already. So I, yeah, anyway, so, so I, would, I would keep the face-to-face if I could up front for some of that sort of stuff. The, the downside or one of the downsides of face-to-face is when I mean, people like to say, well, you can read people's body language, for example. But the body language research is quite interesting in that actually it's not nearly as informative as people think. So to give you one example, there was a, a study where they had people who were had been recorded. So this is, a, a, I guess, a visual version of it, recorded giving some fairly emotional, providing some fairly emotional content. And they had then test subjects who were, were asked to try and work out what that sort of, how the person who was giving this communication, how, how they were feeling. And some of them could see and hear the person, so they could see a visual recording of them. And some people could only hear the, the recorded audio recorded version. And how well they go at picking the, the emotional content that was being delivered? Well, the people who actually only listened to the audio version did better. So they were really? focused on what the words, were, what was being said and the tone of voice. What was being said and the tone of voice, those two things were more important. And what you picked up from the visual cues Yes, you might have been able to pick something up, but it was less important than just listening to what they said and their tone of voice. So it actually provided, if anything, a small distraction from actually the listening to the words, the, the meaning of the words and the tone which, uh, with which they were delivered. And there's, there's anyway, well, actually, sorry, to give you another example, a friend of mine uh, had a shoulder injury and he went to work and, and he was just uncomfortable sitting in his chair. And the only position he could sit in where he was comfortable was by crossing his arms across his chest. And he said he just had right. a torrid day the whole day with everyone thinking he was pissed off. And you have to keep saying, no, no, I'm not pissed off. I've just got a sore shoulder. So, so it's just an example, I guess, of how all those sort of body language courses you can do. Often there's, well, this crossed arms might mean they're angry or they're upset. It might mean that they're hiding something. It might mean they've got a sore shoulder. So exactly. And, and that's interesting, <laughs> isn't it? You can't overemphasize. And some people like the same thing with scratching your nose. Like, you know, that's often been seen as a lying thing. Like I'm thinking of Alan Pease in the 80s. He used to say, you know, people scratch their nose or touch their face incessantly. Sometimes it's just a nervous tick for some people. They generally have an itchy nose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and that's why the itch, so itchy nose plus I didn't eat the cookie in the cookie jar and I've got cookie on the cookie crumbs <laughs> on my desk. Uh, that yeah. so you need to look at those other contextual cues. Yeah, that's right, and and it's those other things that are probably more important than me scratching the nose. And so that's that's why that 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 video test is quite compelling to say actually that some of those things are distractions. So that's that's why I'd have face to face up front, but the face to face stuff thereafter, or even in a visual sort of in a in a Zoom type context. I don't think there's as much value perhaps as, as some people see versus a telephone call. I'd still keep the telephone call. It still allows you for that. That's the dialogue, the back and forth, the clarifications, all the sort of flexibility that comes with, with phone. But then you've still got other stuff. You've got email, for example. I mean, yeah, you, you're absolutely. not going to use a phone call to say, hey, I've got this legal contract. Let me read it out to you over the phone. 
no, no, please email it to me and I'll come back to you with comments. So, so we've, we've still got this, yeah, absolutely. this range of options. I think the benefit we've got with remote learning is all the tools that come with Zoom or with other, with other tools where you've got chat functions and you've got voting systems and you've got virtual whiteboards, some of those sort of tools which really connect with the decision-making research about group dynamics. If you've got a group setting, I reckon that's the real benefit, the, the thing that we've probably come away from COVID thinking that's really added to some of the group dynamics that you can't quite as easily get out of a, um, a face-to-face meeting. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to ask you, do you have one or two mentors that stand out and what have they taught you throughout your career or at certain points in your business journey? Yeah, and I think from a professional perspective, I'd have to point to people like Daniel Kahneman and Gary Klein and Michael Malbusen. But from a more personal perspective, so if I took my say my father as a as a as an example, so one one example of something that he said to me early on that has made a difference and even connects with some of this negotiation stuff is I used to ride my bike as a school kid. I used to ride my bike to school, and I mostly went through the back streets. It's only a few kilometers; wasn't too far. But I had to cross one busy road. And my strategy for crossing the road was to wait for a bit of a break in the traffic and then weave my way out into the, into the right-hand lane and then indicate, put my arm out, wait for a break in the other traffic and get across. And my father one day said to me, why aren't you crossing at the lights? And I said, well, oh, I don't like crossing at the lights. I have to go a bit further out of my way and then I have to wait for the lights. And actually, I want to leave at the last possible minute because it maximizes the amount of time as a teenager I get to sleep in before I go to school. And and frankly, when I'm in the right-hand lane and I'm turning right, look, I'm doing exactly what I should be doing. That That is what you should be. You should be there. I've got my arm out. I've got my helmet on. I'm visible. I'm waiting for I'm doing everything right. This is my, this is my right as a cyclist to be in the right-hand lane turning right. I'm doing everything right. And he said to me, yes, you might be completely right about that, Simon. But frankly, it's going to matter very little to you when you get hit by a car that didn't see you and you're in hospital <laughs> or losing your life oh, or brain damage true. or something. Yeah. yeah. And so that to me was a bit of a wake up call about my view about what is just and right and what then effectively is the best thing for me to do. They can be quite separate. I just need to get on with my life. It was a bit of a, of a lesson in in sort of resilience and flexible thinking, I guess, to some extent. But it really connects with the negotiating stuff because part of what we do in negotiation is we do things that we think are fair. I'm giving you offering this particular salary, which I think is fair because we benchmark the salary for other employees, for example. But from, from an employee's perspective, it might be, well, that doesn't seem fair because, gosh, it seems a bit lower than what I was previously on, and that's, that, that's unfair. I'm not going to take a cut. So be, both of us can come to a, to a negotiation with different conceptions about what is fair, both thinking that we're being fair and the other person's being unreasonable. So I, I quite like what he the lesson my father taught me in that case about my perceptions about what's fair and just, how that fits in, but then it's the connections with other people's views of what's fair and just can be quite different and we need to be able to understand and work with those as well. Yeah, that that's really that's really the point of it, I suppose. So if we chatted again in a year, what would you have hoped to change in your business by then? Uh, two things, I guess. One is I do a lot of face-to-face workshops. I find a lot of value in particularly negotiation stuff where you can break people into pairs and you can sort of listen in and do a lot of stuff face-to-face. And that's obviously been quite difficult when people have been at home and travel's been restricted. So I'd, I'd want to be getting back to doing more of the face-to-face uh, workshops and conferences. And the other thing I would say is that I've done a lot of finance investment related stuff. So as you mentioned, super funds, 
I don't know, private equity, venture capital groups, investment managers, uh, financial advisors. But a lot of the concepts from negotiations and group decision making, all that sort of stuff, actually, I think has got a fair amount of broader applicability across corporate decision making for the finance teams, risk teams, strategy teams, M&A teams, all sorts of things. So I'd, I'd be wanting to, I guess, have expanded a bit more of my focus from a narrow investment sort of finance focus to a broader corporate government, not-for-profit perhaps, environment as well. Yeah, they're great goals. Final message for us today on the politics of negotiation. I liked your initial point that it's it's hard, it's it's difficult, it's it's uncertain. The negotiations they're just not easy, and people can shy away from them because for that for that reason. And I, I completely agree, agree with all those sentiments. But that's not to say that we shouldn't engage with these things because even a well, I was going to say a poor negotiation, even a suboptimal, we don't have to get things perfect. But there are certainly things that even though it's difficult, we can improve on. And if we can get to a win-win outcome, even if it's not the, the best possible thing, but if, if we've used some of these sort of underlying psychological concepts to make things better, gosh, we just we just have to give it a crack. Absolutely. Great advice. If you do want to connect further with Simon Russell, there will be some details on the show notes. Until next time, take care. Thanks so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed the politics of everything, I thrive on your feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network through Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. I'm always on the hunt for new and diverse guests. So if you or someone you know has a fresh idea, you're busting to get out there, please email me at amber at amberdanes.com and my crew will get back to you very soon.